Welcome to Cancel Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the business of law podcast. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Michael Evans, uh, Managing Director um, at uh, Byfield. Uh, hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Meg. Good to be back on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, and uh, I hope the start of the year has been uh, quite good for you so far. I mean, it's been really hectic on our side, for sure. Yeah, it's been really hectic. Taking over as uh, Joint Managing Director with uh, Ben Gerdelstone has been... Yeah, an adjustment, taking on new responsibilities, um, but it's a lot of fun. I can imagine, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's get started on this week's stories. Um, so let's start off with one from the FT from Jane Croft and Josephine Campbell. Um, so that story was about how um, a survey from the uh, London Solicitors Litigation Association found that um, most litigators in London uh, were saying that liability-driven investment-related litigation uh, against uh, advisors and um, uh, kind of fund managers will will pick up um, due to like kind of pensions uh, failures last year. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? The reality is that there was a vast amount of money lost. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking about tens, potentially hundreds of billions of people's pension funds. Yeah. But I suppose the question from a the question from the from a blame perspective it, was it the uh, trusts and uh, quoting. Um, Special fiscal operations, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> mini budget that caused it, or was it liability driven um, uh, strategies? And I don't think the answer is clear. The survey itself is interesting. It does say that there are likely to be cases. Whether or not there will be a wave of them remains to be seen. Mm. Um, but we will certainly see some really big cases here, and it'll be fascinating to see how that kind of how that have a blame is allocated for, for, for what what happened because clearly it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had this sort of fiscal madness from the Definitely. government when suddenly their for reasons unknown their biggest political priorities seem to be to give millionaires a fifty thousand pound a year tax cut funded with money from who knows where. Yeah. Um, so uh, wh- whether pension fund investment strategies were really responsible for the losses or not is is, is, is an open question. Yeah, and, and I feel like, I mean, let's say you've got a bunch of, you know, um, people suing these funds, and um, I wonder if the funds would have grounds to potentially sue the government for that that policy. Um, Who knows? That would be fun. I'd pay to watch right? that one day. Um, <laughs> Um, but I, I, I thought also in in the uh, the other parts of the survey are just as interesting. Um, there's a, there's a seventy five percent of lawyers expect a rise in U S style class action lawsuits and group litigation in the next couple of years, mm. particularly in the competition law space. I think that's definitely something that we've seen picking up a lot. Um, and from a and it's interesting. Obviously, you know, we do VR. Litigation VR is part of what we do, and it's kind of interesting that a lot of the action has been on the um, on the claimant side in terms mm-hmm. of litigation PR, and 
I think what we're going to have to see over the next couple of years is more sophisticated PR strategies on the defence side mm-hmm. of, um, of class actions and group actions because quite often, you know, the size of the book that's being built determines the size of the losses, the, yeah. the, the potential, what you're on the hook for. And leaving the field open and clear for claimant firms is causing both potentially much greater financial uh, harm, yeah, but also much greater reputational harm. So I think we're going to have to see big companies become more sophisticated in their strategies. And it has to be sort of separated out from the general, like, massive corporate communications. Um, so I thought that was really interesting uh, part of the survey and potentially... That's where we're going to see a huge amount of action, particularly mm. in the Competition Appeals Tribunal, because um, it's opt-out, so people yeah. are automatically in, um, and there's a lot of a lot of cases moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's definitely a trend we've been expecting for a while, so I don't think there's any surprises there. But um, yeah, as you said, I think it's going to be an interesting development over the next few years to see what type of clients as well are going to be going to, going to be sued for for in in those um class actions as well um i think we're going to see some trends in that space potentially in in future years kind of around esg matters and that kind of stuff you know greenwashing and all that but it's it's interesting um for sure um i agree esg um data claims yeah. to some extent you know or any kind of competition cartel type yeah. Behavior. I mean, interestingly, there's, 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 a, <laughs> there's been some speculation that companies, if they get too friendly with their competitors over uh, ESG matters and cooperate too closely, they could themselves fall foul of competition competition law um, by cooperating even in even from a good place. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's something that that uh, that's now a topic of discussion as well. Mm. Next up uh, is a story from Louis Gossett CTAM uh, about how um, dozens of UK firms uh, went into bankruptcy over the last year because of the rising costs of taking out professional indemnity insurance policies. Um, so that's, I mean, I think quite a, a few firms on, on the high street especially, we've not seen that yet in big law, but... Uh, that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Um, but I think, yeah, for, for kind of the high street firms and maybe mid-market as well might be quite affected by that. Um, any thoughts? I think that it illustrates how macro big picture trends impact the legal sector. Um, yeah, but concerns about potential falls in property prices, um, and the global economic downturn worsened an existing situation. So, yeah, you know, particularly in the property sector, I think, for mm. conveyancing mistakes, if, you, if things go wrong, it's such, it's not high value by corporate law. Yeah. In corporate law terms, but it's, for most of us normal people, yeah. buying or selling a house maybe the single biggest financial transaction that we ever make. Yeah. Um, and so getting it wrong comes with huge potential liability. Yeah. And so uh, insurance is, is super important and you can't operate without it. Mm. 
Um, so if you take an existing trend with uh, the risk of falling prices, the high cost of, of, of claims, um, you can see why it's happening. We're not talking about huge numbers. I think there were nine in the last quarter, mm. but it does illustrate how... That's quite a lot already, just in three months. I guess. Uh, there's a lot of high street firms. It, it's a, it's, it is a... I, th- I think it's a trend that will probably get a bit worse before right. it gets better. Um, and even for the bigger firms, I would guess that this is a trend not just in property, but the rising cost of, uh, of, of insurance. And those growing costs come at a bad time when you know the legal market will be fine yeah. because legal businesses are very good at adjusting um, to change the economic conditions after a transition period. But right now, we're in the middle of that transition period where and adding significant additional costs uh, when revenues may be flat or falling a bit is not ideal. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, but yeah, quite sad news. Um... The next story is a bit more tech uh, oriented. Um, so uh, it's a story from Legal Cheek. It's Emily Hinckley who wrote this uh, this week. And it's about this um, AI app. Uh, it's a chatbot called ChatGPT. Uh, Michael, I think you're quite acquainted with it. <laughs> Um, but basically, um, the, the story was really interesting because they were saying how, um, some professors in law school were advising students to kind of get acquainted with that sort of technology because it could help them, um, communicate with clients, at least in initial terms, uh, and also draft some documents. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think a lot of lawyers will, will kind of say, well, you know, what's the point of us if, if robots can do it? Um, which is a fair point. Um, I don't know what you think about this. Well, it, firstly, it is pretty amazing. Right. Um, I've been having it write my kids' bedtime stories for me. Um, Lovely. Last week <laughs> to try it out. And it's pretty good. It is pretty good. Um, it's a little bit formulaic, but it is... A lot better than I than I expected, um, and I'm pretty sure that if we got it to write a plain vanilla lateral hire press release or something similar to that, it would do eighty percent of the work. So that's something we should think about for our own industry and sector. Yeah. Um, you tell it if if you ask it to write a bedtime story for a five year old about two girls going to a pet shop and something magical happens, it does it. I'm pretty much pretty sure that if you if you tell it to write a story about a firm making a lateral hire partner in the uh, private equity space, it will do a good job too. Yeah. Um, I think more broadly for the legal sector, it, this is going to be a thing. This is whether it is this version of the software or something a little bit more advanced. Microsoft have just put $10 billion into this, mm. into backing this. It is already extremely advanced. You're getting this go, this additional vast investment going into it. And I think it's kind of ironic that for decades, automation has been the threat to manual work, to, learn, yeah. to, to what we would consider lower-skilled jobs. And that's true. That's been the case for a long time. Yet now... AI is coming for knowledge work and professional white collar work mm. quicker than anything else. Mm. Um, you know, it's coming for us. <laughs> yeah. It's coming for, 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 for lawyers to a degree. Mm. Um, I think it raises questions about ownership structures in the longer term um, of 
is that it, if, if, if a lot of it can be done by technology and it's that top level judgment and the claims on revenue streams and clients that really drives a business rather than hours based stuff. Yeah. Um, that then it's having the claims on the revenue and having the client base that becomes the value as much as anything else. Yeah. And maybe a top level of judgment that you don't need all the stuff below. Um, that that's that's still fantasy at the moment, but it's a lot less of a fantasy than it would have been five years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's going to raise a, a hell of a lot of questions um, and opportunities as well. I can see that. My only worry with this type of technology is, you know, if, if you get your juniors to to use those tools to draft, you know, documents and that kind of stuff for your clients, or even to kind of initiate basic conversations with your clients, I think it takes away a part of the job that you need to go through when you're junior, but also... If, what if there's a mistake in the in in the document that nobody spotted and and then it gets the client into big trouble you know could we see technology is better at ident you know for years in in you know, we've there've been programs for e-discovery and so on which are far better at spotting things than people mm. having 20 trainees and contract lawyers locked in a room for, for weeks on end. Fair enough, Manually yeah. reading documents mm. is far likely to throw up errors than a, a reasonably good uh, computer program. Yeah. So there will still be errors and mistakes, I'm sure. And there will be questions around liability. Can you sue? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> uh, I mean... Uh, but software? No. Not but software, it, but then you can sue the firm, though. Potentially, but equally, if the number of issues falls by if the number of mistakes falls by eighty percent, yeah, then it's still a good result. But yeah. you're right about how do people how do people learn without experience to to it. But equally, we we you could say the same thing about how, how do we we have access to so much information now compared to twenty or thirty years ago, yet teenagers still learn yeah they just learn in a slightly different way yeah so i think it's an opportunity as much as it's a th I, on balance it's more of an opportunity than a threat but it is a seriously disruptive opportunity mm -hmm. i think that's a great way to put it another story from emily hingley at legal cheek uh from this week uh, about how partners uh, partners at u.s firms um outperform their uk rivals uh, thanks to higher margin work, I mean, I'm not extremely surprised by that. Um, I think that's the kind of trend we've seen coming for so many years that, you know, and I think they also put more more hours than, than partners at um, typical UK firms. I might be wrong on that, but I, but I just think the nature of, of US firms is just on a different level when it comes to expectations. But also, yeah, the... the, the margin of the work as well for sure I, I can see that um i guess it depends what firms you're comparing to but yeah I, I i think that's a trend we've seen for a long time um i think one of the elements of the story acknowledges that a lot of u.s firms in london quietly provide quietly refer a lot of employment tax mm -hmm. and other work to um to uk firms and yeah. not just to 
you know, mid-market UK firms, they actually refer it to some of the, some of the big players as well. Yeah. They don't try to do everything. But again, referring back to the previous story, it's, it's having that claim on the top slice of the, you know, the, the most lucrative piece of the pie. Yeah. But whether it's the corporate piece, the finance piece, the client relationship. Um, you know, I used to work for a big global firm that had a very good business doing um, post-merger integration work. Yeah. And that for big international mergers can be very good work. It tends to be somewhat... Not always, but it tends to be lower margin than doing the, the, the documents of, about the deal up front. But it's still very good business. And I think the same applies for um, UK firms getting referrals mm. for employment tax, IP, other types of, of, of work. Yeah. US firms do have a different model. Yeah. Um, of the ones we're talking about in terms of your, your high-end ones. They don't try and be full service. They haven't tried to be full service for, for, for a long time, really. Agreed, yeah. Um, uh, but that also means it's it's kind of it's not really a threat anymore because it's happened. It's yeah, happened, right? yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's been going on for a while. Like it's yeah. not like it's brand new. But it's sort of self limiting because the more full service and lower down the chain the US firms go, then they would be kind of eroding their own profitability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this kind of it is that focus on high margin work works, but it is. It is self-limiting. Um, but it does sort of suggest to me that how law firms explain their strategy and how they position themselves is not really... This is sort of... A, it seems almost like a little bit of a dirty secret. Oh, yeah, we actually get a lot of... You know, we would say that we compete with the US firms, but actually we get quite a lot of referrals. I know what you mean, yeah. Because... Uh, and, and, and I do think that... Sometimes firm messaging in not acknowledging that can be a bit disingenuous at times. Yeah. Um, and it would be interesting to it would be interesting to know how much of it is going on. That's interesting, actually, because I remember um, when I was a journal, we were looking at that at one point, but it's just so difficult to to get to the bottom of these things because, like, partners know what they're referring, but they they don't to other firms but they don't really care that much about it like if you ask them they, they they're just like yeah you know we we work with other firms on on this types of this type of work and that kind of stuff but it's so commonplace for them that they don't see how interesting it is for for other people in the industry that are like well actually is what does that say about the market in itself and, and the way you practice and, and about your firm in itself as well so um yeah it's 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 definitely a really interesting trend um I feel like in a way, a lot of these U.S. firms kind of should almost position themselves as like a, a well, obviously they're not boutiques, but like kind of specialists, if that makes sense, uh, in, in certain areas. Like for, for private equity is an obvious one, but M&A as well. Um, I think there's some U.K. firms that could claim that too on, on some scale. But um, it's just yeah, in- interesting that their strategy has been to mostly focus on the really high paying stuff and then the 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 less like it's it's important but like less lucrative stuff they just kind of do it if they can but otherwise sell it to other people it makes sense though if you it does it, but it comes back to the value you have of knowing knowing what you're seeking to do yeah and doing it well yeah and making it work and growing that business without going too far outside of the core of what you are good at and what yeah. you're all about 
Um, it's it's when any business, not just law firms, kind of forgets what they're all about, forgets what they stand for. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Best and stretches themselves into into areas that they don't really understand. That's when often you can hit trouble. Yeah, especially in terms of quality of, of the advice that you're giving. But yeah. Last story uh, from the FT, it was Kate Bealey and George Hammond. Um, and it was, a, again, an office story. We've had quite a few of them in the past couple of years, but this one was actually quite nice. Um, so it was about how, obviously, there's currently a major struggle for all firms out there to bring people back into the office. And there's obviously now a lot of space that's empty um, um, and firms moving around to smaller spaces. But then uh, it's interesting because the story was talking about how uh, management at certain firms are trying to lure people back into the office with um, like yoga studios and that kind of stuff and, and uh, beekeeping on top of their uh, roofs and all that. I mean, personally, I'm not sure how... Uh, I'm not sure beekeeping is going to get you back. <laughs> come and get done. Come and get back in the office. And... I'm not sure. <laughs> you know what? Like, I can see how, you know, on an ESG level, how they, they can claim, you know, it's good PR. It's like, yeah, you know, we've got this on our roof and, and we're trying to hit our targets and whatnot. I just think that that element is very much separated from bringing people back into the office. I just don't think that's 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 a problem of culture for bringing people back into the office, especially the younger generations. And I don't think having bees on your roof will help with that. Um, but I thought it was really interesting. I mean, the yoga stuff... Um, um, I mean, we, we know some firms out there in London that have paid a lot of money for offices where you've got, you know, swimming pools and you basically have a whole city inside with all services that you could ever ask for and, you know, rooms to kind of rest or like play games and whatever else, kind of like tech startups. I'm not sure it's worked out for the for the legal industry as well as it has for the tech industry because I think the culture is is extremely different. And I don't know if you can really apply that um, into the legal industry. I'm not sure if if um, look, I mean, it's a good effort. Like it's it's a great effort, but I, I'm not sure how successful this will be. I think it's I think it's an interesting. There are a couple of things going on. I think one is the incentivizing people back to the office, mm. although tougher economic times and the need to be visible probably will do some of that anyway yeah. um, through the course of 2023. Clearly not all firms, some firms will, 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 will benefit um, and do very well from, from diff, more difficult times, but the market overall will have a, is, is, is having a tougher time of it. Yeah. That, that makes it more important. People want to be more visible. They don't take things for granted as much. So I think that will happen as a matter of course. But I do think that... All firms put vast amounts of management time and energy into office moves. It's their biggest, you know, after salaries, it's their biggest expense. Yeah. You know? Well, sometimes travel can be very expensive. But um, the, the, the rent for the office is, is a huge overhead, um, but also can be an asset. You know, huge, lots of client meetings. It is a client space as well as a law firm space. Yeah. So getting that right. I think we're probably past the days where you have a lovely meeting rooms and a posh carpet that ends right at the point where you go into where people actually work and yeah. it looks all sort of 20 years ago when you get on the other side of that door. Um, there has been a trend to really upgrade working spaces, uh, which is good. 
an acceptance that hybrid working to an extent is here to stay. But I also think that firms rightly use office moves as a vehicle to almost polish up their brand internally and externally mm-hmm. as a sort of vehicle to talk to the market, say this is what we stand for, this is this is who we are, and it's kind of expressed through the working space. It it can feel a bit forced, but it is genuinely important because people spend such a lot of time mm. there. Um, I was speaking to somebody at one of the accountancy firms, actually, though, who's um, in the process of building in the metaverse a mirror version of their London office. Mm. And they so when even when people are working at home, they can go into the virtual office and it is the same as the actual office. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I thought was a really interesting concept. And I do think we will see uh, the hybrid world and the office world coming closer together yeah. um, through technology. But really, that kind of using your move as an opportunity to reposition the firm with your people, with your clients, and to some extent with the media is important and it's really important to get right. And certainly we've worked with a few firms on things like that um, and, and, and to, to make the most of those opportunities. Hmm. Um, so... Yeah, no beekeeping, though. I don't think that's a draw. (laughs) You know what, though? Like, I was thinking about it, and if you're going to have, like, a gym studio or a yoga studio, whatever you want to do it, um, I feel like this should come with a flexible policy that allows people to have, like, like a two-hour lunch break to be able to do these activities, because I think a a lot of lawyers just don't have that luxury. Um, In France, that's what happens in a lot of companies. Obviously, the lunch breaks... Three hours. Exactly, they're really long. So I remember, you know, my 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 mom was used to say, you know, oh, at the office today we went for like a gym class and that kind of stuff during a lunch break. But it's it's something that's culturally across the whole country mostly accepted. It's not true for every place of work, obviously, but you know, for a lot of places of work, it's true. And I think it's it's kind of the, in the mentality of the people that they can do that if they if they have that luxury. Whereas here, I think you have to really make an effort to create that time. Uh, that I don't think they always can have in the legal industry. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. All right. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast. It's and, always uh, a pleasure. Well, same for me. <laughs> and uh, thank you to the listeners. Don't forget to subscribe. We're, uh, uh, we've got our podcast available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. You've been listening to Council Culture, the Business of Law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.